never lose the love for your craft. Never lose that reason why you first started playing the violin or that reason you sang that note. Never forget why you wanted to dedicate your life to the creative arts. This is Max Q, the podcast by Peabody's Launchpad office dedicated to demystifying what life is like after graduation. Every episode, we sit down with a recent alum to get their take on what life is like for working artists in today's world. Multifaceted careers, time management, finances, finding balance between your work and your life. We explore that and more on the Max Q Podcast. This week on Max Q, we're speaking with drummer, educator, and composer Alan Branch. A multi-instrumental jazz performer, Alan has played international venues including Carnegie Hall and the Berlin Music Hall. More recently, Alan has moved into education and is currently the Dorothy Claiborne Teaching Fellow at the Bryn Mawr School in Baltimore. Aldo Branch, I'm so glad to have you on. We're really excited to, to bring you on to Max Q and have a little bit of a conversation about your path and, and how things are going. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm very grateful to be here. I'm, I was surprised when you guys asked me, um, I'm, but I'm very excited to be here. I will. So I, I found you because I was looking around through, I think, the jazz department's Instagram page, and I'd seen some of the stuff that you were up to. And I thought it was an interesting um, kind of path that you'd been on. Of course, you know, people going through and going into education, I think, is a big piece of um the population that comes out with music degrees, right? And it seems like you're managing it. I, well, I want to hear what you're managing. So if, if you wouldn't mind telling me a little bit about like what your life looks like right now, what are you doing? What are you up to? Right now, I it's, it's the post-grad lifestyle. And I'm also recently a newlywed. I would like to point that Congratulations. out. Congratulations. Um, yeah. So in my life as a, you know, at some point I was a struggling artist when I got out of college. Being a little older, I had some some responsibilities of having a son and then I got married and have a house. So I would say that the fire was kind of hot underneath my tail to sort of find a way to make money. So right yeah. now I, I have completed a four-year teaching fellowship um, for the independent school systems, which has been sustaining me for a while now. Um, other than that, I'm Right now, my life looks a little calm. I've since just kind of like stopped playing a lot of gigs and wanted just to focus on um, my product. And I can talk about that a little later, but right now my life is a lot more calm. I'm home more often, just go to work, come home, have church on the weekends, play gigs here and there. And what I'm trying to do is, like I said earlier, is to work on my product, but also get back to being creative and not losing my love for music in this need of you know surviving and making money. Got it. Yeah, totally. So what is what is the product that you're you're talking about here? Robin, I'm so happy you asked. Uh, shameless, <laughs> <laughs> shameless, shameless plug here. Um, it's it's still in the in the beta process, but I'm developing an app or more so of service. The service is called GLS, which stands for Gospel Lead Sheets. And what I do is it's it's pretty simple. You know, as a jazz major, I got really used to writing charts for, for songs. And I, I realized that, hey, it's a lot easier to show up to a gig with an iPad full of charts than to be on the gig trying to play for memory. And the same uh, attitude isn't really 
um, common in church because in church you grow up just playing the music from ear. You know, nobody's reading the charts. You know, there's hymn books that have music in them, but nobody's looking at that. They're all playing from ear, which is, is kind of special, right? But I've always, you know, you know, I've always learned that, <laughs> as my dad would say, um, he's like, Alan, you can't be a church musician all your life. He's like, you know, <laughs> he was a, the impetus for me going to New York and to touring in Europe and essentially going back to college. But I've learned that, wow, these musicians in church are very talented, but sometimes they'll be overlooked in the professional world if they don't have, you know, reading skills. So I thought, okay, all of these charts that I've been written, that I've been writing over the last five years as a, a keyboard player, why not make them accessible to other musicians and the goal was to make an app that essentially is a person can go to church and somebody call a song and they don't know it they can just pull up you know my app and there's like a simple lead sheet that can at least help them as i like to say from going down in flames like it's just sort of like okay here's the <laughs> there's a lot of that going down like yeah but the idea is like what you run into is you run into problems in, in the church where singers aren't musicians or trained. They don't know the keys. They change the arrangement up on the spot. So my charts is essentially just a roadmap to, you know, let the musician know, here's the information, here's the key, here's the time signature, here's the form, you know, see you at the finish line. And yeah. Yeah. But overall, my, my dream from all of that is to essentially – have church musicians just learn the basics of reading charts from my lead sheets. Awesome. So, I mean, and that seems like that's a space that you're working in. So it's obviously something you're really familiar with. Cool. So I, I feel like I, I would benefit from just hearing a little bit more about, I heard you mention that you toured Europe, that you went back to school, that you took some time. Um, I, would you mind just framing out a little bit more of the journey of how you, how you got to here, maybe, you know, pre Peabody and then through Peabody and then, you know, that, if you want to talk about any of the bit about how you ended up in position where you are. Robin, you asked really good questions. I, I like how we're going <laughs> deeper into this. Um, this particular <laughs> part of my, <laughs> I love talking about, you know, where I've come from and where I am, because I think that, you know, growing up at church was very helpful. I, I like to say that, you know, um, I went to the school of life through church as a, for a musician is concerned. So prior to Peabody, I, I'm from Baltimore, born and raised. Grew up in the church, as I said, in the Baptist church. Very conservative lifestyle. It was, you know, church three or four times a week. And I first went to church having not been to church all my life. So I first got to church at six, saw a guy on drums, and instantly I was like, I want to do that. So I gave my life to Christ. That's what you do at church. You walk down the aisle, and you're just like, hey, I want to be saved. But in the back of my mind, I'm just like, hey, I want to play drums. And <laughs> at that person's church... In order to do that, you had to be a part of the, the, the ministry. And so at the beginning of my life, it's been a lot of training in church, having to learn music by ear, and essentially being introduced to other instruments like piano and bass. So I, I got into Baltimore School for the Arts, uh, go BSA, and they transformed my mindset around learning how to read music and incorporating my ear training into all of that. So after high school, I actually had some, some troubles. I had some some hardships, and I wasn't really the best student in high school. I think I finished with like a 1.9, like a really low GPA. However, my musical merit, you know, was something of a saving grace, and I cleaned my act up, act up at the end of the school year, but it wasn't enough to get me into Peabody, which I auditioned in 2008 and was denied, right? Right? So I was like hurt. So I 
you know, it was just loss. In 18-year-old Baltimore City, you know, you can only imagine all the things I could have gotten into. But I went to Baltimore City Community College. Didn't like it, but I made connections and got into the church scene um, as a piano player. And this is one thing I want to point out. As a drummer, you know, in Baltimore City, you're surrounded by people who can just do everything that you do as a drummer. But what I realized is that there aren't enough keyboard players. So I started to incorporate that knowledge of reading music and starting coming to rehearsals, playing keys. And that's sort of how I got my start in, in community college. And I worked with the, the choir there and was hired by the church. And I did that for like two years. And, and then I got an opportunity from um, a friend of my dad's. So aside from being in church, I also grew up playing in community theater through Johns Hopkins Hospital. They had a, a gospel choir and the gospel choir, you know, started just putting on theater shows, review shows. I did like Dream Girls and Ain't Misbehaving and Wiz. And I was a percussionist, so I didn't really get my chance as a drummer. But then I, my reading got better and I got the drummer chair. And now I was playing drums. I was playing keyboards. I was being active. And so at this point in my life, it's high school ended. I didn't get into Peabody. And my dad's like, so what are you going to do? And he's like, I think you should beat the streets. I was like, what do you mean by that? He's like, look, guy, go to New York. He's like, you want to be a musician? Go to New York. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And so that's my mind. My mind was set on going to New York. And I had a lot of loss around this time. But I got to New York, and then an opportunity presented itself. Um, I was offered to go on tour with um, a, a group called the Original Gospel Singers of America. And essentially, it's a, a German-owned company that hires African-Americans to come overseas and sing gospel music. I never knew that, you know, people in Europe really like gospel music. However, it was funny because the shows, they all, the, the audience would clap on one and three. <laughs> and growing up in black church, it was always the, ba the backbeats, two and four. Right, yeah. So that was like sort of like a, um, a culture shock in that sense. But I was good at it. And they had me singing background vocals. And I even told them like, hey, I do drum programming. Right. So essentially, I just brought all my skills. And they were like, hey, man, let's keep you on this tour. So I did the tour for three years. And I came back to New York and moved with my, my friends, had an apartment, did the whole beat the street thing. Yeah. And New York was a very special moment. You know, you, I was in a band, so we did a lot of restaurant gigs. I was playing cajon, mainly percussion, did a lot of, you know, um, gigs with singers and songwriters. And then eventually I played a gig where um, uh, a talent agent from HBO came to the show and reached out to me like, hey, would you like to be on our um, show? It's called Vinyl. It's directed by Martin Scorsese. You essentially would be Carlton Barrett of um, Bob Marley and the Whalers. So I, I took the job and I was on HBO. You can go if you want to go and look at the archives. It's the episode with um, Bob Marley and the Whalers at a, at a place called Max's that was in Chicago. All but right. obviously we recorded everything in Brooklyn. And uh, I did that. I just did one episode. It was kind of, you were there all day, but they paid me handsomely. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, some time would pass. And I did the community college thing in New York. And I was basically at the Bronx Community College and then Queensboro. And remember what I told you? I had a really low GPA. Mm -hmm. I took this time to really focus in. And I ended up getting 4.0s, like three semesters in a row, and just overall raising my GPA. So my dad's like, hey, man, that's good. You know, so I ended up, you know, for multiple reasons, moving back to Baltimore in 2017, and I set my mind on reapplying to Peabody. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back to Peabody with a vengeance. Yeah. Like, you guys didn't <laughs> know what you were missing out back then. <laughs> so um, I actually took a year to go to CCBC, which I'm glad I did because throughout this time and being in New York, 
I went back to that playing by ear mindset and I did a lot of not not a lot of reading. It was more of like only only reading I did was when I went to play community theater at NYU or did off Broadway shows. But at this point, I'm like, okay, I need to brush up so that when I audition for Peabody, I can be ready. So I did a, a year there and auditioned at Peabody, and this is a weird year for Peabody's jazz program, where um, they were switching over heads of the jazz department and bringing in new people. So there was a year and a half where we didn't have any official, you know, um, jazz musicians to run an department. It was run by an administrator, which which is weird, but we had some decent teachers. So at this time, it was good for me because I was working my way back into being in school again. So I took this opportunity to really try to make some good connections. So after, you know, Peabody, after graduating, after five years, it took me five years to finish, but I finished. I found myself being introduced to the independent school system. And my, my wife had a friend who worked for a school and she's like, hey, they have um, a need. This is during, This is actually during COVID. They's like, hey, there's no teachers in the classroom right now, but they need some some teacher aides to just run the Zoom in class. I was like, why not? And I think, and I'm thankful for you know the attitude that I have because when I went to that job, I I rose to the occasion with attitude, with appearance, with you know just how I spoke, and it caught the attentions of the heads of the schools. And one thing I like to do is. During the lunch period, when the kids are outside playing, I went out and played with them through the football around, and somebody was like, "Hey, that that guy's special." And what they did was they cre- um, the school created a teaching fellowship for aspiring black teachers solely around me, if you ask me. And um, yeah. this was the opportunity for me to kind of cut my teeth and learning how to be an educator. So, to round out, in conclusion, to round out my story, I, for the last four years, I've been in a teaching fellowship, and I was um, teaching in middle school and high school music classes. I was teaching private percussion lessons. I was running um, a percussion club, which eventually turned into a percussion program. And then I was appointed you know, to teach preschool. So I was a little school music and yoga teacher for a little while. And you know, due to everything that's happened in life, I kind of like stepped back from the teaching because I... I just wanted to explore other options. So right now I'm in the options, in the area of exploring my options and seeing where I'm going next. And what I'm really trying to do is figure out how serious can I be with this technology route, especially with, you know, how the world has changed with AI and you making money from music online is more prevalent than actually playing out. So right now I'm just trying to think ahead of how can I make music or make money while I sleep at the same time, you know, how do I leave a mark? And on most importantly, what service am I providing? How, how can I help somebody? And I think I've learned through all my years, you make it as a musician by providing a service. There are a bunch of things I want to follow up on, but I think the first one in there is I, I heard a big through line of, of making connections and kind of building on, on the relationships you had with people. I, I think the, the two periods in, in particular I'm curious about is in New York, right? You're talking about how you found these, like, how, how did that how did that gospel gig come around on that tour? Like, what, what was the relationship that led to that? Robin, they, they got the right person asking the good questions. I'm glad that you're here right now. So connections, I will start with this. In New York, before I kind of jump around, in New York, I learned one valuable lesson. They always say, it's all about the hang. You can be a really good musician. You can be super talented, but if no one wants to be on the same gig with you, you're not going to make it. When I was in community theater, my dad had a, a musical director 
this gentleman, you know, got he and I got close because I began to play drums more with him, with the choir and with the theater. And he was like, yo, you'd be good for the tour. So it was actually him who, when I graduated, finally was like, yo, are you going to college or what are you doing? I'm like, I'm lost, bro. He was like, well, come on tour and it, you will love it. And so I believe that because I was a hungry young musician who was faithful and committed to doing the best job, I developed good relationships early on. And I didn't even know it. it. It just became a part of my personality to sort of make people feel comfortable around me when we're playing music. And that led him to connecting me to that sort of tour. And um, connections is so, so important because when I came back to Baltimore, that church that I was working for before leaving, you know, I still had a good relationship with them. And it was like, hey man, won't you come back a few Sundays and play for our youth choir? And before you know it, um, they had moved some musicians around and there was an opposition opening and they were like, hey, man, we would love to have you. And I believe it's because of the connections that I made with the people previous to leaving Baltimore. Awesome. So, I mean, the next piece of that was then, I mean, you talked even specifically when you're kind of going through talking about your journey about uh, when you got back into Peabody, having that be a time of like just a lot of connection making and uh I don't know, were you a little bit more, was that something you were, you know, intentionally going about? And if so, how are you doing it? Like, what, what's your strategy? Because, I mean, I think this is something that a lot of, a lot of musicians struggle with. I think, um, I will say, I'd say in general, I think that the jazzers are much better at it because I think it's part of just the culture. And, like, you guys gig a lot more than, say, like, the orchestral musicians. What's your like? What are your tips that you pass along to to the poor, you know, opera singers out there who don't know how to talk to people? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't want to like generalize because I do. I know a lot of classical musicians who are like really who have long lasting relationships with the people they work with. One hundred percent. I will. I will say, yeah. And I. I think that um in in the in the idea of connections and relationships with people, quality is better than quantity. And what I mean by that is um, connections is important, right? Because you want to have good friends and you want people to look at you as, you know, a suitable, you know, colleague, right? But how do you make good connections, especially in a community where it's like not normal for you to go out and play a lot? I think I would focus more on finding more quality friends than finding a bunch. And I think the way to find quality connections and friends is to work and collaborate together. It's essentially... Um, aside from just being a good person and just not being rude or judgmental and all that kind of stuff, is <laughs> sort of one, <laughs> one, bringing something of quality to the table and two, being open for criticism. I think jazz, like you said, I love the word jazzers, by the way. Uh, Richard Johnson is on the piano faculty at Peabody in, in the jazz department and he refers to jazz musicians as jazzers. And I don't know I, where I, I picked that up. Term. I feel like I might have picked that up at Oberlin, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I, it must be a common thing, a common thing to call jazz musicians. But jazzers are special. Um, for example, I for a long time was playing down at the R House in Baltimore City every Monday for a jazz jam session, and at any Monday, any point, you can see forty musicians from high school from surrounding areas, from Peabody especially, from the city. And what you're thrown into is sort of like like the wilderness. And you're you're using your own wits in forms of survival essentially to like, you know, find food or find shelter. And in the music world, finding food and finding shelter will be how can I get on stage and play this tune with these guys and improvise and show them that I am, a, you know, somebody worthy. And what it comes down to is like, 
at these jam sessions, for example, you don't just walk in with your horn and walk up to the stage. You kind of have to know somebody or somebody has to know you. And in these environments, the best way to make connections is to go up to somebody. doesn't even have to play your instrument. Just go up to them and be like, hey, what's your name? Um, okay, let me jump back to New York. Remember I told you, you know, it was all about the hang, right? And I, I was so hungry that I went out to jam sessions. The idea of jam sessions is very important. Um, I went out to the jam session in Brooklyn and ended up seeing musicians who I've been listening to all my life. I, I'm just like, you guys are in New York? This is so amazing. And what people began to realize is like, oh, that's, that's that kid, that drummer from Baltimore. He's always here, like asking questions about stuff. He's always, you know, talking about how he liked, I, how I played that chord in measure 32 of the first song. Like, how did, so um, one specific example is I went to, um, the Shapeshifter Lab in Brooklyn is owned by Matt Gar Garrison, famous bass player, incredible. And um, Mike Pope, who is a gentleman from Baltimore, um, I can tell a story about him because he got me connected with John Patitucci, who essentially got me into Peabody. But when I went out to see him perform and I went up to the guitarist, my friend and I, and I was like, hey, man, you're killing it, dude. I mean, this guy was really playing. And he was doing stuff on the guitar that I had never really seen before. But what I noticed about him is, his aura, like the the vibe that he presented to the stage was one of like, he was more interested than trying to be interesting. His I, I could tell that his ears were open, everything was playing was like in response. He was leading conversations, but also following. But anyway, I went up there and was kind of like tugging on his, his coattail. Like, like I was like, Robin, uh, Robin, I went to this guy and was like, hey man, the way you use the whammy bar is crazy. And I love those R&B chords. He's like, what do you play? I was like, I'm a drummer. I'm from Baltimore. I've been here for a few years. Like, hey, take this number. Give this guy a call. They're having some show and they having open auditions and they need people to go and perform. So uh, it turned out to be this um, show called What's It All About by a guy named Kyle Abko. And what he did was reimagine Burt Bacharach music. So it was off Broadway at the New York Theater and Burt Bacharach was all there. So essentially I went through the audition process, didn't get it. But I was a nagger. <laughs> I went in there and I was being just a good person and I didn't get it, but somehow I made good connections with some of the people and we continue to have these relationships. And I found myself at the rehearsals and I found myself sitting front row at the show, found myself at the after party meeting Burt Bacharach, talking to the writers of the show simply because I was interested than, more than trying to be interesting. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I mean, uh, I'd say one of the, the through lines I hear from almost everybody we, we have on the podcast is, you know, go to the show, just go to, go to the show. <laughs> right. And I love that you were talking about being a nagger, but I also feel like that's just, that's just following up. Right. Like that's just being a quality, like checking in, just checking in. Right. Like knowing how to, how to, how to do that. Oh man. I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious now we've kind of worked through. Um, so a, a, as you were, you know, graduating from Peabody, which obviously was, I think that was, during the middle of, of uh, rather uh, tough time to be a musician, um, you know, what were what were your ex expectations on graduating, and kind of how have they changed now? <laughs> Such a good question. Um, I mean, I graduated during you know a tough time, and it was weird because I, when I graduated, I was expecting sort of to kind of go into a community of people who are just calling me for work. Because mm. I went to the school and I'm like, you you know my rap sheet, you know where I come from. Like, why is the work not waiting for me? Mm. Mm -hmm. And I was disappointed because I was met with, oh no, here's, you know, here's the world. You got to go and kind of like fish for yourself. We led you to the water. 
Now it's up to you to drink. So Peabody, or just having graduated from such an um, intense program, prepared me to, like I said, look for opportunities just to be prepared, but also made me to snap into reality quickly and realize like, oh, these opportunities won't find you. You have to go out and find them for yourself. So I would say I've done a lot more self, you know, um, I had to go out and do a lot of the stuff my own versus just waiting for handouts. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, and, and so I guess then, uh, could you talk through a little bit of you know, how you started getting into education? Yeah, sure, sure. So I told a story earlier in our conversation about just me sitting in the classroom during, you know, um, you know, that, that weird, weird time when no one was working and I was just a body in a room. And I be, you know, so I honestly never thought that I would be in education. I taught lessons privately and I was just, I'm good with kids and I'm good with anybody when they're trying to learn drums or music. But I never thought that I would be a person waking up in the morning early, you know, before sunrise and the person coming home and writing out lesson plans and sitting through professional developments and going on trips to learn more about how to be a better community. I never thought that I would be in that realm, you know. So I'm, I'm happy, though, that um, education found me because it taught me a lot about the things that I wasn't really good at outside of being a musician. Um, and those skills you learn from being a teacher. I mean, if you could think about it, like your teachers, you don't even, it's like seeing the tip of the iceberg, right? You only see what they bring to the school and what they do. You don't see all the other stuff and all the other stuff is beneath the surface. Like, like I said, pr planning and essentially the one skill that I took away from education and which is why I would suggest a lot of musicians get into education is, these, is this idea of, simplifying um, a very intense idea so that somebody who doesn't know can actually understand. So I've gotten really good um, at doing that for students, but what I realized that is inadvertently, I think better. I, I think more simpler. So education just helped me to like realize that you, you gotta know the stuff, but you also gotta know that people probably don't know what you know. So how can you meet them where they are? Yeah. I. I am curious, you know, are there anything that you're kind of watching or listening or reading right now that you uh, feel like are, are relevant to our conversation or you just want to talk about? <laughs> um, off the top of my head, I, I'm reading a lot of stuff. I don't know if it's really um, <laughs> relevant to the conversation. However, I will That's say okay. this. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I am reading, this might be kind of off the wall, is 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. Okay. And I realized, and I think this is a great pivotal moment because w when we talk about organization as a musician, we're not talking about like musical skills. We're talking about the professional skills that you need to sort of like do your job in the real world, right? And one thing I learned about Robert Greene throughout a lot of his writing, um, like The Art of Seduction, is he has this sense of organizing his thoughts in his head and what they call frameworks. So what I'm doing right now is researching a lot about human psychology and just how how to effectively communicate with people. And what I've stumbled upon is figuring out like, hey, Alan, you might have a lot of good ideas, but sometimes you're not on the one track. You, you can sort of like deviate from the track. So what I've been working on tirelessly is coming up with ways of thinking fast and what I call that frameworks. For example, um, I, I do a lot of YouTube scouring from people who like just have like podcasts and 
conversations about how they operate in high stress environments. Um, and a lot of people refer to, for example, like I said, 48 Laws of Power, they refer to generals and armies from around the world. And they, they analyze how these people who are leading massive amounts of people and having to strategize about attacks and stuff like that think about one thing. And they think about beating the other person before they get to it. It's, it's not even about like being strong. It's about like how quick can you get to this problem and what strategy do you have? How, how often have you tested this strategy? So I will say this. My framework of thinking right now to help me organize my music life and personal life and converse better when I'm trying to make do business with people is one thing is remain interested but also if you find yourself in stress chill out and just honestly think about the bigger picture like what are they talking about what are they trying to say you know don't worry about the rhetoric and I realized this I this might sound strange but sometimes I'm in conversations when I'm doing business I manually go into okay let me go and think about what they're saying and categorize it and I do it in a way called um, using ethos, pathos, and logos, right? When you have ethos, it's about the credibility, you know, ethics. And pathos is more of a pathological aspect, right? And logos is like that logic. So sometimes when I'm listening to a person give like a talk or they're doing business and they're having all this jargon, I'm like, where's the emotional part? Or where's the logic? Or where's the ethics? And this kind of helps me not only understand, but essentially guide the conversation in a way where I'm bringing more of them out. I, I say a lot less, and I just listen more, and I'm realizing that, oh, this person actually wants this instead of this. So I realized that another skill that I've developed through through reading these, these little self-help books and stuff like that is, first of all, being a good storyteller. First of all, following along to see the forest for the trees, you know how they say that. And also control the, the dialogue to essentially get what you want. I'm, I'm going to just put it so clearly. It's, it's, it's not manipulation if you're engaging in, in, in providing what you your service. So I will say that people, musicians should spend time reading through self-help books. They should spend time reading through history books um, around generals and around strategies. And then they also should spend time to think about their own relationships with the people around them. I, another Another subject that I think is anxiety provoking for a lot of musicians um, is negotiation, particularly as it pertains to negotiating fees for gigs and things like that, right? So I'm, I'm very curious, particularly within this framework now that you just, you know, kind of built out, is that something that you, you know, have brought up or that has come out of your experience with, um, you know, kind of negotiating fees or figuring out how gigs work and, and working on that with producers or clients? Back to what you said, Robin. You got to go to the shows. And what I find myself <laughs> is I go to shows not expecting to make any connections or business just to go enjoy a show. And I walk into the venue. I'm just kind of like, I walk into a venue and I see, oh, my band could play here. I see that, you know, it's a Tuesday night, but on a Wednesday night, they're kind of low. They're lame in customers. So I go home and I devise a plan. And I'll go back and I'm just like, hey, I, um, for example, this is me talking to a business owner for a venue, like a restaurant, you know, in Columbia, let's say. I'm like, hey, you guys just opened. I realize on Mondays, you're kind of slow. Um, I have um, I have a band, and I believe that, you know, if you guys just let us come in on this night, that we can increase your, your patrons, you know, by like 20%. And we only ask that you would pay us $500. And we'll bring out this many people with us, and you guys can like give us some drinks from the bar and feed us, and we'll just call it that. And, you know, and but here's the catch. 
we need to have this conversation or this this um we need a contract that say you can keep us on on file to be your entertainment on this night for six months. So I've learned that, and I had to go back and re, you know revisit the plan and kind of figure out best ways to kind of present it to them. But what I noticed that is that the framework is you're going into is more of a like emotional. I'm starting with the uh, pathological. I'm just like, hey guys, I really love your venue. It feels so good here. I believe that we can take it to the next level with bringing us in here. And they're just kind of like, well, how much money do you want? And that's where going to like the logistics, you know. You know, hey, okay, you know, normally we receive this, but I understand that you guys are not right there, so we'll take this. And that leverage is like, oh, they believe in us. I'm like, well, no, I, I'm going to raise the price in a few months, believe me. But for now, we just want to get in there. And and the ethics part is it's more of about like, um, what does my resume say? Like, you know, what, what are people saying about me? Like, can you believe me? So it's kind of like I show them my resume or I show them videos. So you kind of have, you got to go in with like, like I said, the three tiers. You got to have the ethos, the pathos, and the logos in order to sell your product to these venues. Just to kind of close this out here, I'm wondering if you have any, any bits of advice you'd like to offer to current Peabody students. I would say this, the, the one piece of advice that I would give to potential and current Peabody students is first and foremost, do it early. Do your work early. Don't wait to the last minute. Have priorities, your priorities are set. Also, make good connections with the people who make the decisions. Go and talk to the people up high up that you normally won't, wouldn't talk to. Talk to your, your professors. And I would also draw emphasis on these particular classes with build, um, with the you know professional development courses that you get towards the end of your career. Take this stuff serious. And the assignments that you're given in the class prepares you to have an EPK, for example, by the end of graduation. So do the assignments and keep everything organized in one central place. And you won't have to do it again when you graduate. You might have to tweak it. And then finally, never lose the love for your craft. Never lose that reason why you first started playing the violin or that reason you sang that note. Never forget why you wanted to dedicate your life to the creative arts. So that, those are my, my pieces of advice, you know. Although, thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Robin, thank you for having me so much. And I thank the, the Max Q series for allowing me to come on on this podcast and share whatever I have learned in the last four to five years after Peabody. Closing out the episode, we have a clip of Alan's original composition, Baby Done Changed, from his album 27 Love. You can find a link to the full album in the show notes.
Change, 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 change